Good morning. How's everybody? They always pick all the good songs when I'm not up here. <laughs> Gets me in the feels, as they say. Man, the, man, they did a great job. I'm thankful uh, for those guys. Hey, uh, we are in part three of a series called Moral Mayhem today, and we're going to dive right in. I have a question for you. It goes like this. Do you really want to be like everybody else? I mean, do you really want to be like everyone else? You know, you want a marriage like everyone else, or you want the college experience or the high school experience like everyone else, or the dating experience like everyone else. Think about that for a bit. While you're doing so, I'm going to tell you a story. I've golfed. I've played two rounds of golf in my whole life. Two, which is two more than the cups of coffee I've had. I have played two rounds of golf my whole life. And the second of them was this. My wife and I were newly married. This was 17 years ago. We got married when we were 11. That was pretty cool. Uh, my wife and I were newly married. And we called our parents a couple of, a couple of weeks after uh, our wedding and back from our honeymoon. And we said, hey, we'd like to come see you for a bit. My dad was a pastor at a church in Warrensburg, Missouri, which was a couple hours away from where we lived, which was here. We said, we'd like to come say hey for the weekend. And my dad answered on behalf of both my mom and him and said, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, we're having a 4th of July golf tournament. You should come be on our team. <laughs> Why are you laughing already? <laughs> I said, I think that's a bad idea. And he said, no, for real, here's how this works. And I don't understand golf, so forgive me when I use terms that those of you that really golf uh, know better than, so I'm just going to like fumble my way through this. But it, was, it required four people on a team. I don't know if you call it a scramble or whatever you call it, but it's four people on a team. And my dad's explained to me that we only need to use one of my hits, is that what you call it, strokes, whatever, right, right, the whole day. So just like one shot mark that you take that is like less than really, really, really terrible, we'll make work because the guys that we have playing with us were two guys that were members at his church. One of them was a board member. They were both golf pros at local courses. So he was quite confident that no, no matter like how badly he nor I butchered this thing, that they would carry us and we'd be just fine. OK? So I said, well, OK. But I don't have any golf clubs. And my dad said, no problem. I got some clubs. You can use mine, which those of you that are golfing are thinking, that's a really terrible idea. My dad's six foot tall. I'm only 5'10". Six, 5'6", five, all right? So and the, the length of your golf clubs, as some of you might know, is a direct correlation to the height you are, right? Or, so. But I, I didn't know any better, and it goes without saying. But I'll say it. My dad also didn't know better, right? So he said, we got these two guys. They'll carry our team. I got some clubs. I can't think of a reason for you to say no. So I reluctantly said, sure, we'll do that. So Tara and I go on out there. We head to my parents' house that weekend. We get ready for this uh, tournament. She's going to hang with my mom. I'm going to go golfing with the fellas, right? I'm going to go be with my dad, and we're going golfing, and it's about to go down, right? So we went. And I got the golfer's look and everything, right? I got the nice shorts on. You know the golfer's look. The nice shorts on, that shirt with a collar that's tucked in. And I was wearing a hat, and I, like, I looked the part. I was ready to be a golfer 
for the day. It was going to go just fine. I was excited. We're going to make this work. So we got there. We got introduced to, I was introduced to these guys. Remember, my dad just became the pastor here. He doesn't really know them well. This is a day he's going to get to know these guys. We show up. We exchange pleasantries with this guy, these guys, and we say hi. And we, you know, I try to I tell them how like terrible I'm going to be, but I'll try to give you one decent shot that you can make something work. And it was all good. All was well. We enjoyed their company. We enjoyed getting to know them. We enjoyed um, exchanging these introductions. But then the golfing happened, right? And we were going to be golfers. I was going to be just like everybody else that day until I golfed. <laughs> My very first drive. You all know what happened, right? It's right there. I didn't touch it. Didn't so much as like nick it, right? No problem. I'm good. Try again. Same thing. And then again. And then again. And then again. When I finally hit the ball. It went two or three feet further than me and like 50 feet that direction of me. Like it was so, so, so bad. Now, I need to tell you, I told you we looked like golfers. We felt like golfers. We were going to show up and be golfers. I forgot this part. And it's worth, it's, I have to say it because I, I get to it later. We walk up to the clubhouse. My dad's got his brand new set of $2 garage sale golf clubs with him. <laughs> This is what we're golfing with. I'm not even sure it's a full set, but I don't need a full set. I can golf with a driver and a putter, it turns out. But, and I'm walking up with this. And again, I thought I was a golfer. We look like golfers. My dad's got his, his, his ghetto golf bag over his shoulder. And I'm walking up there with a, a five-gallon bucket of golf balls. This is what I'm carrying up with me. And it's, this, it's a preemptive strike for just how bad I know the day's going to be. We're going to lose a lot of golf balls, right? But I don't know where I found these things, but I got a bunch of golf balls. So that's, that's how we take the course. And I know these guys were looking at us weird from the beginning. But so we went with it. We went for it. And you know, how the, you know how you get the church giggles? Like it's like nervous laughter. At first, I swung and missed. And it was just like, what was that, right? It's like, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you're sitting in church, and it's all quiet. And somebody said you farts, right? <laughs> right now, some of you are going, this is right. I love this church. <laughs> and some of you are saying, Right? And you're not sure what to do, and you're like, no one will move their head, but your eyes are like, what's happening here? Like, that's what we had at first. Like, the first couple of times I missed, that's where we were. But before long, my dad and I just couldn't keep it together. I mean, we just couldn't stop laughing. And it turns out what I didn't know about golf is that you're supposed to keep it together. Right? You're supposed to be kind and courteous and quiet when someone else is driving the golf ball or, or putting or whatever. When it's their turn, you do this. I didn't know. But even if I did know, it didn't matter because I just couldn't keep it together. We were laughing so hysterically, hole after hole after hole after hole. And the guys that we were playing with were so annoyed with us. I mean, they were, they were, I think, potentially more annoyed with us that we couldn't stop laughing as we were with them that they wouldn't laugh. Like, there was holes we were literally, and I do not use literally figuratively. We were literally on the ground rolling, laughing. We just couldn't keep, 
I mean, it had to be so obnoxious, knowing what I now know about golf, which is why I don't play golf, because I don't have enough control of myself to keep it together. But we were literally on the ground laughing, and we just couldn't stop. And I'm realizing several holes in, like, I don't think we have enough golf balls to make it through this round. We've, we've lost a lot of golf balls at this point. I've taken very few good shots. And remember, we have to use one of my strokes. I have to take one marginally not awful shot the whole day. We haven't done so yet, but we've started to, do, to take this, this approach of, you know what, I won't even play. I'll just walk with you guys. At some point, you'll lay up right beside the hole, and I'll put one in from you know four inches. And we'll use, we'll use my putt, and we're good. But we hadn't used one of my strokes yet. We were running out of golf balls. And I told my dad, I was like, Dad, we've got to lock in, man. Like, we've got to get ourselves together. So, so we tried to stop laughing. We, we got calm and collected. And we're like locked in. We're going to be good now. And we approach. And we had a couple uneventful holes that, that, that worked. But then we got to the 16th hole. Stupid 16th. Anyhow, we got to the 16th hole. And I don't remember if it was our drive or if it was like after we got up onto the fairway. I don't remember. But there was a shot we had where we had, we were sitting like on top of this pond. And this pond was probably, it wasn't big, 50 or 60 feet across, right? It was more of a puddle than a pond, really. But by this point, here's what started to happen. My dad and I's golf was so bad and so obnoxious to them that these really good golfers also had started to play really bad, poor, terrible golf, right? They were bothered. We had got them flustered. They were bothered by it. So, so we, needed to get, we needed to get past this deal. And I wasn't taking any turns, right? I just like, whatever, I'll take a turn later once we have a putt. So the first one of them wins up, goes up to take a shot and sticks it right in the middle of the pond. The second one goes up, take a shot, no problem. Right in the middle of the pond. But it's cool, because we still got my dad. He's also not good, by the way, but he's better than me. And he goes up, he sizes up his shot. No problem, Dad. Just get it over the pond. I don't care if you hit this ball, you know, 63 feet for the 60 foot. Like, get it over the pond. We all know what he did, right? He stuck it in the pond. So now it's up to me. My moment of glory has arrived, right? It's up to me. I got to get the, all I got to do. I don't care what happens. At all costs, I get this ball over that pond or else we're, we're sunk, Right? No pun intended. But so here we are. We go up to this. I, I get my shot ready. I'm sizing it up. Do what they do. They take a little practice stroke thing. I don't know why. It didn't matter. But I took a practice swing. Someone handed me a seven iron. I don't know why it was a seven iron. I guess that's a club you use in golf. I don't know. But they handed me a seven iron. And I go up there. And oh, baby. It was a thing of beauty. I mean, right down Broadway. The backspin on that thing was beautiful. It was everything you would expect a club to be doing as it was flying <laughs> through the air. And it was over. My life was over right then. And so my dad and I, who had collected ourselves, right? We had laughed, but we had collected ourselves. Now we got to this hole, and we were going to be good. And then that happened. And then we're back on the ground rolling again, right? We're laughing. We're rolling across the ground. And these guys, and I, I was annoyed with them, and they were annoyed with me for opposite reasons, right? And I looked up at them from the ground, and I said, not even at that, right? Like, it, it looked as though the pond was giving us the bird. My club was sticking right, right, 
and nothing. They, I said, not even at that. And without dignifying my question with any response at all, he did this. Are you going to go get that? <laughs> and from the ground, I said, I don't see why I should. I can just give my pops two bucks, and he can get himself a brand new set of golf clubs, right? This, I'm not chasing that thing down. You, no. It's bad. It was bad. That was my experience at golf. After the, uh, after the round, we didn't see those guys at the clubhouse. <laughs> and that Sunday, the next day at church, my dad didn't see him at church. <laughs> he never saw them again. He never, one was a board member. Like, they, they were regulars. They were connected. They were a part of the church. We ran them right out the church from our terrible golf play, right? We, that day, we lost a seven iron, two church members, and not like four or five, but 60 golf balls. 60 golf balls. And you're going, how is that possible? I don't know. I don't know. I just know we had a lot of bad shots, and we thought we had enough. We didn't have to chase them, right? What in the world? Like, that was our experience. That all, that all happened in the name of trying to be like everyone else for a day. For one day, we tried to be like everyone else that we were with on the golf course. By the way, Pastor Tim gave me permission to say fart from the stage, so... <laughs> I texted him this week, and I'm sure it was weird for him to receive. I said, can I say this word? And he said, I guess. <laughs> and I said, OK, I'm going to sit on it. <laughs> but I did it. So uh, we're taking new ground here at Grace Point. We've, uh, we've added vocabulary to the stage. I don't do this very often. Now you all know why. All in the name of trying to be like everyone else, we had a crazy, ridiculous, horrible experience. In the name of trying to be like everyone else. See, being like everyone else isn't always all it's cracked up to be, right? Let's talk about everybody else for a second. Real, real quick, Can, let's, I want you to imagine a beer commercial. Okay, a beer commercial. We've all seen them on, on TV. And you can see what I can see, right? Everybody's having a good time. There's people gathered around. I don't know, they're on the beach, or they're in the sun, or they're in a campfire, but they're having a good time. Life is easy. Life is loose. You're hanging out with good-looking people, and you're having a good time. And we're all feeling really, really great about everything. We're with beautiful friends, with beautiful smiles. It's a beautiful day. Everybody has all the money they need. Everything's going well. They live in this euphoria that happiness is right there, or at least right around the corner. All they need is their next job, or their next promotion, or their next relationship, or their next kid, or what have you, right? That's the beer commercial. So just envision that with me for just a moment. Here's the reality. And there's statistics for all this stuff, uh, which I found this week, but I'm going to bury that and just give you the, like, the broad strokes. Here's the reality. Most of those people in that commercial where everything looks perfect, most of those people are worried. They're in debt. They don't enjoy what they have because they're fixated on what they don't have. They're dysfunctional, and they blame their parents. They're bored because their dreams aren't coming true. They used to think that life was going to take them somewhere, but now they're, they're not quite so sure any longer. They drink too much. They have a prescription pill problem. Single women are afraid they'll always be single, so they leverage their bodies. 
Single men aren't sure marriage is for them because, I don't know, it just seems way more fun to just do whatever I want with whomever I want, whenever I want, without having to answer to anybody. Married women are afraid their husbands will be unfaithful. Married men are afraid they're going to be caught. Parents focus on kids so much that they want their kids to be so successful that they, frankly, just drive them away. That's the reality of everybody else. And I'm painting very broadly. I get that. That is not all of us. But you'd be amazed at the statistics. That's the beer commercial. That's the commercial you just envisioned a moment ago. So we wonder, when we watch these beer commercials, we think to ourselves, what do they have that I don't have? What do they know that I don't know? Like, where, where can I meet those people? I need more of them in my life. They're just so happy. And the truth is, everybody else takes their cues from everybody else. And here's the deal. If you take your cues from everybody else, you'll end up like everybody else. The problem is we take our cues from their highlight reels, right? Like we get the good stuff. They put it on social media for us or wherever we find it. We get the highlight reels. We can't see what's on the inside. We only see what's on the outside. And man, oh man, if we could just see like how their outside behavior was eroding their insides, it may make us think for a moment, maybe I don't want to be just like them. Maybe that's not as good an idea as I thought it was. But if we could just see what was happening in their hearts in their souls, in their minds. Here's the bottom line. You did what, was you, what you thought was right in your own eyes. You did what you wanted, when you wanted, with whom you wanted, and you abandoned what you suspected to be right in your heart. I want to show you the way back. We, I'm going to show you the way back uh, from that today. Here's a quick review. We've been in this crazy Old Testament book of Judges the last couple of weeks, and we've actually been a little bit in Joshua too, which is uh, the book that directly precedes it in the Old Testament. And that's where we're going to be in uh, both those spaces again today. But we've been in Judges, and here's the deal. This book takes place between the time of Joshua's life and death and Saul, who would eventually become king. Here's Judges. It's right between where there is no King Joshua has just led the Israelites into the promised land that God had promised them. And that's where this thing is. And the very first king wouldn't come till there's differing stories, but somewhere between 300 and 350 years later. So it goes like this. Moses actually led the people out of exile, out of Egypt. But before he made it to the promised land, he died. So Joshua takes over. Joshua gets them right. Moses got them to the doorstep. Joshua gets it like, you know, across the goal line. He gets them into the promised land, this good ground that God had promised them. But then he dies. But he knows it's about to happen. For whatever reason, the scripture doesn't tell us, but he knows he's going to die. So he delivers them this speech. And that's kind of where we're at. He gives them this speech saying, hey, oh, here's, here's what's going to happen. Right? So that's where we find ourselves in the book of Judges. He knows he's going to die. And isn't it interesting? I think this is fascinating. You ever been with somebody right before they die who knew they were about to die? How important are their words? Like, how powerful are their words when you know they got to make them count? Like, they have to matter. They're the last ones they get to say, well, that's what Joshua was dealing with here, we think. Right? So he's, he's telling these guys, he's telling the people of Israel, God's chosen people, how they are to live. And that's what this book is doing. 
Now, this was a theocracy where there was no king, but God was seen as king, right? He would rule with these judges. Joshua calls them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. Thus, they would be able to show all the rest of the world, at least the nations around them, like who God was and what God was about, right? That's why they were to obey. And he tells this story through judges. Now, you and I or not tells a story. He redeems his people through judges. He delivers them through judges. You and I think of judges. In fact, like the thing on the front of your bulletin would suggest so. I don't remember if it's got the gavel on there or not. But our graphic for this, for this series has a gavel on it. You and I think of that when we hear the word judge, right? This courtroom, this guy or gal with a gown on, and they got a gavel, and that's a judge. That is not at all what this is actually to be like. These were people that were like regional or political or military leaders. And be warned, this book is a doozy. If you've not read the book of Judges and you were here a couple weeks ago, you went for the first time, you might have thought, that's in the Bible? Like some of it was so horrific, Pastor Tim wouldn't stand up here and say it, probably because he's got better judgment than I do, right? That's in the Bible. I mean, it is terrible what they experienced. So the story of Judges is really just, just like corruption. It's this moral corruption, this failure to heed Joshua's instructions. And it's basically how the people of Israel, God's chosen people, became no different than the Canaanites, who were really just a bunch of perverts and murderers and thieves. I mean, it was they were not at all interested in living in a way that God would be thrilled with. So for over 300 years, history just repeated itself over and over and over. And it looked like this. Disobedience, disaster, Deliverance, disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Basically, this part of Israel's history is just a series of cycles like moving in a downward spiral, right? So Israel became like the Canaanites. They would sin against God. So God would allow them uh, to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites. And eventually, the Israelites would have this judge. God would have this judge like appointed. And they would, they would deliver these people. They would, they, would, they would defeat the enemy. This judge would rise up and defeat the enemy. And like there would be this, this time of peace for a little while, right? But at some point, Israel, the people, the Israelites would, would realize the error of their ways, and they'd repent. Disobedience, disaster, deliverance, and just rinse and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And here's how it looks for, for you and I, right? Dad, I'm at the police station again. Right? I'm at the police station again, Dad. Oh, I did that thing, you know, maybe you kind of warned me against. Like, I heard your directions, Dad, and frankly, I followed a lot of them. Like, I thought they were pretty sound, but that one or two, like, I just thought that might have been asking a little too much. And, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do what they were doing if I did that or be with those people if I did that. So that one or two, the, wouldn't you know it, Dad, like, that's the one I chose not to follow, and that's the thing that's landed me here. So I need you, Dad, to come bail me out again. Like, that's the people of Israel, right? God, would you deliver us again? Would you do it again, Father, over and over and over and over? Tim asked you a question a couple weeks ago, and he's closing it. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't remember exactly how it was phrased, but it was basically this. If you're God, if you were God and you saw this happening, the people of Israel, this nation that you had called the, to be your people. They keep messing up. They keep botching this whole thing up. They're disobeying, and they're finding themselves in disaster after disaster after disaster after a disaster. How would you respond? 
I mean, I don't have a good picture of what that looks like other than the relationship I have with my kids, right? I give them about one or two times, then it's, it's over. <laughs> like, it is over. I'm not going to continue to forgive your stupid behavior. I'm going to make sure that you never do that again. Uh, I'm going to, like, lay down the law, right? Like, how would you respond if you were God? Well, the book of Judges shows us how God would respond and how he did respond. We see him delivering the nation of Israel over and over and over again, which means that this God that we talk about every single Sunday, the one I'm talking about today and the one that we will talk about every time you gather in this space or any other space within this church, is a God of compassion. He's a God of compassion. You heard Tim say last week he's a God of mercy. I'm going to take you to the very end of the book. It says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And part of the reason that this disaster became the nation of Israel, like part of the reason this came upon them is because they saw these other nations around them and they said, ooh, that looks good. Ah, yeah, I want, I want me some of that, right? Like they thought to themselves, that looks good. And Lord, I know what you asked of us, but in it, this like this, this isn't compromising much of that, maybe, but, but I think it's probably worth the trade, right? And Pastor Tim talked again last week about trading one king for another. So I, I think that the, the king we're talking about here is like they traded this idea that like God wasn't honored as king. Freedom became their king, right? It was, their, it was like their highest and maybe even only agenda or maybe freedom to like emulate or impersonate or to, to have became their king. And it was a total disaster, so Joshua's farewell address acknowledged uh, their propensity and ours. I want to be very clear about this. Their propensity and ours to take our cues from what's happening around us. And these words sounded really harsh, I'm sure, at that time. And I think they probably sound harsh now. But this is from Joshua chapter 23. It says this, be very careful, therefore, to, the lo to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, here's verse 13, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground the Lord God has given you. He says, hey, check this out. Don't, this is Joshua telling them before he dies, right? This is a big deal. Don't take your cues from them. Don't look around, look up. In fact, we sang about it a little while ago, right? Don't look around, look up. Hey, stop comparing and stop watching their beer commercials. Stop comparing yourselves to that. Anybody ever wish that you could go back and like unsee or unknow or undo something that you saw or did? Or like you wish you could just go back. Some of you, I imagine, are driving something today because of a mistake you made, right? And I'm not so damn, but you know, I drive a car too, right? So you're driving something that you wish you could go back and undo. You, your, your, your neighbor down the street said, hey, Steve, hey, man, I got a brand new whatever, fill in the blank. And you said, oh, cool. And he said, why don't you come over and look at it? So you hopped in your car, apparently because he wasn't your next door neighbor. He lived down the way, right? You hopped in your car. You went over to Steve's house. And on the way there, you didn't, have anything, you didn't think twice about it. Your car was fine. It's a good car. Right? It's all good. You got to Steve's house, and he showed you his brand new truck, and you went, oh, yeah. <laughs> that new, you, you can smell it, can't you? The new car, leather, brand new smell. Can you smell it? I can smell it. And you went, woo, 
Ooh-wee. And right then and there, you were kind of hooked. And then you said, man, that's great, Steve. Cool. And then you got back in your car, and you drove back home. And now you got in your car, and you realize it actually smells a little bit like cheese and feet, right? <laughs> smells a little bit like family, right? Your minivan smells like family. So does mine. It's the way it goes, right? And now you, here you are several years later wishing you could undo that because, I don't know, maybe you bought the truck and you couldn't afford it or this or that or it's giving you fits. I don't know. But you wish you could undo it. You didn't even know you had a need for it until you saw it. Now you just wish you could undo it. But you wanted to copy him because you wanted to be like him because, well, what he had was awesome. Although what you had was fine. You wanted to be like Steve. Here's the thing. The stuff that captures our attention determines our direction. The stuff that captures our attention determines our direction. I would go a step further. The stuff that captures our affection determines our direction. And you find yourself in a place where you just can't say no. So you're trapped. It's become a trap. It's become a snare or a trap for you. Your attention is there. Your money goes into that. Your resources, your time, all of your thoughts go to that thing. You just can't say no. And, we're, and you're literally trapped in the same way that Israel became trapped by the very people they were trying to copy. But what if God wasn't trying to keep the nation from something good? Like, what if we need to shift our minds a little bit? And maybe God wasn't trying to keep the nation from something good. Maybe he was trying to give, and I'm not even going to say maybe. He was trying to give them something good. In fact, he had already given them something good when he brought them out of Egypt. He got them to this promised land. And scripture says it was a good ground. I mean, he had planted their feet on good soil and given them blessing. He had brought them to where he said he would bring them. He had given them something Good. He wasn't trying to take something away from them. He was trying to keep them special. They were his chosen people. He was trying to make sure they didn't have an agenda to be just like everybody else. And here's some tension that uh, we're all going to struggle with. Maybe we already have. Maybe you're doing so right now. Maybe you will at some point. Here's, we're going to have to wrestle this baby to the ground. Is God for me or is God keeping something good from me? Is he for me or is he keeping something good? Or is he, is he keeping something good from me? So wrestle with it, right? Here's, uh, here's what Joshua would say in chapter 24. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. And I love this line. And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And put away the foreign gods, small g, that are among you and incline your heart, your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel, not the culture around you. And therein lies the issue. Here's the battle, okay? Here it is. Who will be king? Who will be king? Will I yield my life to what everybody around me is doing or will I yield my life to the will of this invisible king we speak of? See, the kingdom of God, I think, is very much a kingdom of conscience. The kingdom of covet is fueled by what I see, but the invisible king desires to guide your steps from the throne of your heart through your conscience, which he created for you. The visible kings, they will, they will numb your conscience by misguiding your steps and leading you to all kinds of things. And let me tell you, there's lots of good things out there. I'm not suggesting differently. But here's the great dilemma. This invisible king versus the kings that are, that are seen, right? The things that we want to be like, the things we desire to have, the things that we've often traded our king 
for. Here's the great dilemma. Are you willing to live inside out versus outside in? Are you willing to live inside out versus outside in? See, I think God wanted Israel to look up, not around. I think it's that simple. I think Joshua was warning them, look up, not around. I think you can go on believing that what they have is great. I think you can go on believing that you need to do what they do and have what they have. I think you can choose that. That's, that's God allowing us free will. I think you can do that. But I think if we continue to believe that grass is always greener on the other side, we might be in trouble. I think sometimes what's necessary is for simply to you, for you to water your grass. Just water your grass. I don't know what that looks like. It means just settle in, focus in, recognize that this, this good ground God has given you was for you. He's not keeping something from you. He's giving something good to you. See, God never really called us to be like everyone else. Actually, on the contrary, he called us to be holy. He called us into holiness to be like him and set apart from everybody else, which is you know, something some of us probably do great and sometimes I do really, really terrible. Yeah, so if that's you, join the club. <laughs> I'll be first in line. Now you might be thinking, this is what I think. Well, how do I, like, like I know that the Lord has been good to me. I know he's blessed me. I know I am to be a blessing to others. And I, if I'm just like, if I'm just supposed to be like God, not like everybody else, can I at least be with everybody else? And I would say to that, well, yeah, because the Lord chose you and I as his church, as his bride to redeem the world. I mean, to redeem the world, Scripture would say it like this, right? We are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? That's, that's something we've heard a lot. I've heard a lot my whole life. But the question is this. Will you yield your heart to this invisible king over all the peripheral things? So if you're, if you're trapped in that cycle, if you're trapped in the cycle of disobedience and disaster, I just want you to know there is... I mean, this is no great revelation today. If you came here, you knew we'd be telling you about Jesus. There is a way back, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. But you have to yield your heart to this invisible king. I want to leave you real quick with a prayer. Here's a prayer I want you to pray this week. I'm going to put it on the screen, then I'm going to pray it over you. If you feel the need to take a screen, get your phone out, take a picture of it, do that. I don't care. But here it is. This is Psalm 119, 35 through 37. This is from Israel's future king who recognized that even kings need a king. Let's pray. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. <coughs> Father, that's our prayer today. That we would be about you, that we would be about your purpose. Lord, I pray for each person that's here. I pray for each person that's watching online today. I pray, God, that as, as we take a second to evaluate where we find ourselves, it's possible some of us are caught in this cycle right now. We know who Christ is. We know that God has delivered us. And right now we're in a season of life where we need delivered again. Father, I pray that we would reach out to this God of compassion and say, Father, deliver me. 
Lord, for the, the person who's gathered here watching online today that doesn't know you, has not surrendered their life to you, I pray that they would see that this God of compassion is worth giving their life to. You've never been about keeping anything from us, God. You have been about giving something good to us. We have life when we have you. Do we have to say no to some things? I suppose so. But we get life in return. And God, for those of us that are here that we are just, you know, we're, we're thinking of somebody else right now. Someone's heavy on our hearts that we see far from you. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us encouraging words for them. I pray that you would give us a spirit of confidence to know how and when to speak life to them. Lord, you have given us life. You have spoken life to us through your word. And I pray that we would be conduits of your grace this week. Help us to be more like you and less like everything else. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.